0: Hello, thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the sermon podcast. Good morning. One of the scariest roller coasters in the world is the steel dragon at the Nagashima Spa Land in Japan. Built in 2000, what makes it scary is that there is a one minute ride up the first hill and then a 300 foot drop and then it continues on for four total minutes of the ride. I've condensed that and given a one minute of that ride. Please watch this video. The last three years of the life of the disciples with Jesus was a roller coaster. Went up and down, up and down. past seven days, it was as if they were in free fall, and without, without the presence of a bottom, it was as if they were just falling in a roller coaster ride. This morning in a sermon entitled, The Heart of the Matter, I want to look at an uh, incident on Easter Sunday that Jesus had with two disciples. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Luke 24, 13 to 35. Please keep your Bibles open to this passage. We will be referring to this passage multiple times throughout this sermon. I've divided the sermon into three parts based on the three emotions that these disciples had. And um, the first one is what I will call heartache. Heartache, verses 13 to 24. Let me read it for us. They were discussing as they were walking along seven miles from Jerusalem northeast to Emmaus, northwest to Emmaus. They were discussing everything that happened. And what had happened in the last seven days was that they were on a high with Palm Sunday. Jesus came from Bethany to Jerusalem across the Mount of Olives and came down into Jerusalem and they were welcoming him with palm branches and the whole city was in a celebratory mood. But within the space of five days, this celebratory mood would turn into something disastrous and the bottom would fall out and they free fall. Verse 17, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. They were disappointed. They were downcast. Jesus' public ministry was for three and a half years, three to three and a half years. And during this time, he had accumulated a few disciples. And they had left their homes, their families, their professions, everything that they had, and they followed Jesus. And now after spending time with Jesus for three years, after giving up their lives for three years, everything turned to nothing. All the promise, all the miracles, all the teaching, all the authority that they saw, it had turned to nothing. This happens to many sports teams. So if you've uh, followed American football, you will see that even in um, Washington football team or different football teams where they they buy a quarterback and they build the team around the quarterback, right? They get wide receivers and they get running backs and they get all kinds of players around the quarterback. They try him out for a year, they try him out for two years, then it doesn't work and the whole thing collapses. Then they got to get rid of this guy that they bought for so much and now they have to start from... And so the disciples are here, they had put all their hopes in this basket, and now it had all collapsed, and they were disappointed. Verse 21 says, but we had hoped that he was the one. And the word had hoped is an imperfect active indicative, which means that they had hoped in the past, and they are no longer hoping. There's no more hope left. And that's where they are. That's where Jesus finds them on the road to Emmaus. They were downcast and disappointed. Let me ask a obvious question. Why? Why were they downcast and disappointed? Let me read a couple verses. In verse 19, what things he asked about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Among other things, the disciples thought that Jesus was going to lead a Jewish revolution. And that was the mindset of the disciples at that time. That was the mindset of the Jews at that time. And it's not their fault they consider their history You know, um, way back in the book of Exodus, they were under the captivity of uh, Egypt for 400 plus years. Then they wandered in the desert for 40 years, came to the promised land where they were there for about 700 years. Then they sinned, went uh, to exile under Assyrian rule. 125 years later, they went into exile under Babylonian rule, the Babylonian empire. They were under that empire for 70 years. Then came the Medo-Persian Empire. And for 100 years under the Medo-Persian Empire, they had some freedom to come back to Jerusalem and build the city wall and the temple. But then after that was the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, about 300 years before Christ. And then the Greek Empire gave way to the Roman Empire. So in BC 27, when Octavius Caesar became emperor, the Roman Empire officially started. So when Jesus was born and the time of the the Gospels, it is a Roman Empire. And these Jews have been under oppressive rule for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so when Jesus came along, the guy with these miracles, the authority, the teaching, who stood up to even Jewish authority, they thought that he was going to fight against the Romans and establish a Jewish kingdom. So much so that even after all this discussion that Jesus had with these disciples now, just before he ascended, in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 it reads, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? After all this, they are still asking, Are you now going to lead a Jewish revolution? They had a shadow view of Jesus. Jesus was not just the king of the Jews. He was much more than that. He had come not just to lead a revival of the Jewish nation. He had come for much more than that. But they had a shadow view of Jesus. So their disappointment was from a faulty expectation. From a faulty expectation. Sometimes we get disappointed with many things. It's even possible to get disappointed with God. Disappointed in the Christian faith because we have a faulty expectation. Let me give you some examples. The Lord is our healer. Right? I mean, there's a verse that says are examples of God uh, healing people, there's examples of Jesus healing people. There are commands to say to pray for healing. But if that's the only view we have, we will quickly come to realize that God does not heal every sickness. Not because he cannot, because it needs to be his will to heal. In addition with the fact that God is a healer, we also have to consider that God is sovereign. So if we don't consider the sovereignty of God and the will of God, we will be disappointed in certain aspects of our Bible reading, certain aspects of the Christian faith, certain aspects of God. God, you said you would do this. Or God is going to supply all my needs. Well, that again is under the sovereignty of God. Is he supplying every need of the believers who are being persecuted in North Korea? I've got a friend who is um, helping about 1,800 refugees from Afghanistan across the border to a country that I won't name. And of these families that he has been rescuing in the last several months, about 120 of them could not get across. Nine of them, well, these are all Christians. All of them are Christians, believers, Afghani believers who are now trying to escape the country because of the Taliban. Nine of them he knows were executed because of their faith. And he knows several Young daughters who are being sold, or who are, who are not sold, who are taken as wives. Does God answer every prayer? Does God answer every need? Does God answer every want? Does God answer every uh, uh, every healing? No. It comes under the banner of the sovereignty of God. So if we have a, a, a pin-size view, a pinhole view of the Bible or of God, we are going to be disappointed. We have to see the big picture. So these disciples had a faulty expectation. So Jesus was about to correct their faulty expectation. They had heartache... But now they had heartburn. In verses 25 to 29, let me read it for us. He said to them, how foolish you are and how so to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if, as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Jesus, in this conversation along the road to Emmaus, had some very strong um, words for them and two things that Jesus critiqued them about is firstly, lack of knowledge or understanding. So in verse 25 it says, He said to them, how foolish you are. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? How many times in the Psalms and the in the prophets it says that sufferings come first, glory is afterward. Jesus had talked to his disciples about his impending suffering. The Bible records at least three times when Jesus told the disciples, I am going to suffer and then I will rise again. Let's read the third of these times in 18 verse 31 it reads, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. I mean, he literally breaks down exactly what is going to happen numerous times. And on the third day, he will rise again. The Bible records three times that Jesus said this, but he probably said it numerous times. And they still didn't get it. And here they are, depressed and upset and walking away. How many of you are parents here? Parents here, okay. Any new parents? New parents? Okay. Okay. One of the things that separates a mediocre parent from a good parent is the ability to maintain an even tone of voice as you keep repeating the same instructions. Isn't that? Are you done with your dinner? Take your dishes, put them away. Next day, same thing. Are you done with your dinner? Take your dishes, put them away. Why are your clothes on the bathroom floor? Why are you closing the Bible? I mean, just continue. Secondly, Jesus critiques them about their lack of belief. In verse 25, he said, He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They were slow to believe. They had the necessary knowledge up in their heads. But that didn't come down to a belief in the heart. We all know that you know, a healthy life is you got to eat healthy and you got to not be sedentary, right? We, there's nobody who is, who is grown in America that doesn't know that. We all know that. But that can remain just a head knowledge, right? We, we know it. But until we believe it, it's completely useless knowledge. We, we know about it. That's great but at some point it's got to come down to belief in the heart. Hidden in this passage is an example of profound knowledge that the disciples had that they did not believe. Let me read it for us. Verse 21, and what is more, this is the third day since all this took place. In addition some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of him who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but they did not see Jesus. These two disciples had a knowledge of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, the the empty tomb of Jesus Christ is the number one evidence of the resurrection of Christ. It is the number one evidence. Anybody could have said anything about Jesus being raised up. But if the tomb of Jesus was occupied, all the Pharisees at that time needed to do was throw open the doors and say, Nope, there's the body. Your claims are wrong. Even 50 days later on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood up and gave his speech publicly and said, Jesus Christ is raised again, the Pharisees could have gone and showed the the rotting body of Jesus. But the tomb was empty. And the disciples knew it. Not only did, did they know of the empty tomb, there were two sets of witnesses that corroborated that knowledge. Right? There were the women that went first, and then some disciples that went later and corroborated that event. In John chapter 8, verse 17, Jesus told the Pharisees, In your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. If two independent groups of people Report on the same thing, it is likely to be more true than not, is it not? In the unfortunate incident of the accidental shooting of Miss Hutchins by Alec Baldwin, the Los Angeles Times reports on the final words of the victim. Okay, so the Los Angeles Times reports on the final words of the victim. Alex Blair in entertainment movies is reporting on that report, and this is what he writes, most parts of the Times account of the events inside that church just south of Santa Fe and of the chaotic production that preceded them were corroborated by at least two people. You see, it gave credence to what happened that day, when two different independent sources confirmed the same event. They had knowledge. These disciples had knowledge, but they did not have the belief. Maybe it was their emotions that hindered their belief, but now they are about to believe. They had heart, they had heartburn, and thirdly, they were heartened. Um, Verse 30 to 35, let me read it for us. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the leaven and those who were with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon, and the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Their eyes were open to the truth. Now the whole thing made sense what the Old Testament prophets said about the suffering of the Messiah. The Messiah's work in the past, uh, past three years and then the, the, uh, the empty tomb and the Messiah himself, everything came together and their knowledge went from knowledge, it went beyond knowledge to belief. Knowledge in the head to belief in the heart. Isn't it true that at the end, it is a matter of the heart? You can know all the things you need to know, but unless it goes from your head into your heart, there is no use. And so they returned to Jerusalem. That night, they were settled down for the night, they were having dinner, they were about to sleep, and then they believed and they ran back to Jerusalem. Which makes me think that if they believed when they were in Jerusalem, they wouldn't have left Jerusalem. They had the knowledge in their heads, it wasn't in their heart, it wasn't a belief, and so they left Jerusalem. Yes, an empty tomb, they confirmed it, she confirmed it, it's an empty tomb, but they didn't believe it, they walked away. But now that they believed it, they came back to Jerusalem. Once they had seen the truth, they had to do something about it, right? The revelation of truth necessitates a response. You can't see the truth and not do anything about it. My dad was a preacher a couple of decades before I became one. There is this illustration that I would hear him say as I grew up about his hometown, so I'm going to say that illustration. He grew up in a rural um, part of a state in the very south of India called Kerala. And it's a very beautiful state completely covered with trees. I mean, it's completely green. Hills and valleys and mountains and lakes and beautiful. So the many of the houses there had just these large properties with the house in the middle, and there was no um, walls or fences between these large properties. It was just, you know, open open area. So many of these houses would have dogs to help for, for protection. So the dogs would stay largely outside and would help in protection. And there were times when one dog in the middle of the night starts barking. So the dog starts barking, probably because it sees an intruder and then about three minutes later, the neighboring dog hearing the first dog to a, uh, barking, starts barking. Then the neighboring dog to that, about three minutes later, starts barking because it hears the second dog. And soon in a space of about 15, 20 minutes, there's a whole chorus of dog barking that goes on in that, in that area. And this goes on for, for several minutes. But after that, the dogs, one by one, they stop barking. And soon all the dogs stop barking, except one, right? Because that one dog had seen the reason to bark, had seen the intruder, but it kept barking until something was done about it. Once we have seen the truth, one, once we have experienced the truth, we cannot keep quiet. What is the truth that we have seen that we now need to bark about and talk about? What is the truth? That truth from this passage is the centrality, the uniqueness, and the lordship of Jesus Christ. The two oldest religions in the world are the Judeo-Christian faith that started with the the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, about 2,000 years before Christ and Hinduism, which is thousands of years old. But when you look at Hinduism, it is so complex and so many layers to it that there are multiple parts in Hinduism that do not cohere. Many parts of Hinduism contradict other parts of Hinduism. There is not one coherent message. And then you come to the Judeo-Christian faith from Abraham. And as Jesus showed here, he shows that he was the central theme. There is one theme that runs through the entire Bible, and that is Jesus. Unmistakably, Jesus. And so he shows that he is the central theme in history. I'm going to end with two quotes and two questions. Philip Schaff, in his book, The History of the Christian Church, writes this about Jesus. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Atheist historian H.G. Wells writes this, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Ladies and gentlemen, this singular dominant figure who is the king of heaven and earth, The central theme of the universe calls us into a personal relationship with him. I want to ask you two questions. How is Christ central in your life? It's ironic that Christ is central to history, but need not be central in your life unless you let him be central. How would your life look if Jesus Christ was central? How would your talk change? How would your decisions change? How would your actions change if Jesus was truly central in your life? Secondly, what is hindering you from believing a truth you already know? Truth in the head is completely useless until it gets down to the heart. You believe it in your heart. And the more we have been Christians, the longer we've heard sermons, the the longer we've read it's easier to just give a mental assent for something. And say, yes, that was a good sermon. Or, I like this about that sermon, I didn't like that about that sermon. Give a mental assent, agreement, disagreement, that's it. Forget about it. It is useless, right? Until it gets down to your heart. If we could go back and listen to a previous sermon and move from the mind to the heart, we would be much more changed than we are today. I'm going to give the opportunity for two groups of people to respond to the sermon. If there's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life, you can pray this prayer after me. Secondly, if there's anybody here who, who has been a Christian, but they are sitting on the throne of their lives, you've seen the truth, but the truth has become old news to you. Your heart has become deadened to the truth, if you will. You can also pray with them. If there's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life, you can pray this prayer after me. The prayer itself is not a magic prayer, but if it's something that you believe from the bottom of your heart, God will answer it and fulfill his end of the promise. You can pray something like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I cannot save myself. Thank you for your perfect life. Thank you for your sacrificial death. Thank you for your powerful resurrection. I ask you to come into my life and make me complete. I ask you to be the center of my life. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. Both now and forever. Heavenly Father, I pray for the rest of us who have been Christians for a while. Help us not to merely give a mental assent to the things of God. Help us to let the word of God come to our minds, have a knowledge of it, but help us to go beyond it, past the emotions, past the circumstances, circumstances past the past experiences that may hinder the belief the help us to believe the word that we have a knowledge of in Jesus name i pray amen amen